For Christ the King, forsake the world and every former friend. As we consider God's Word, the final word in Ephesians 5 about the mystery of marriage, let us go with those words on our mind. I'd like to invite you this morning to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll be reading God's Word, continuing our series on the Christian family under the heading of the mystery of marriage. The mystery of marriage from Ephesians 5. We'll begin reading God's Word in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." because we are members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And we'll end the reading of God's Word there. This morning, may he add his blessing to it. Blessed congregation, the Bible begins with a wedding in Genesis chapter 2, and it ends with a wedding in Revelation 19. After God has created this world, the sky, the sea, the fish, the birds, and man, The climax of the Genesis creation account is when He brings together man and woman and unites them in marriage. And then as this world is said to progress and even to fall into sin following Satan and the demons, we are told at the very end of the Bible that God will make all things new. The death and hell and sin will be taken away. And we will meet our Savior as the Bride of Christ being presented to our Bridegroom. 
this is the climax of this world. The Bible is very clear that marriage is God's idea. That He has a plan for marriage. And that marriage is not just a human, earthly institution, but it shows us something of our Savior and what is to come. But yet you and I live in this world. And we know that this world has a very different idea of what marriage is. A very contrasted idea from God's plan. It is the dominating ideal, the dominating thought of our culture that the Christian view of marriage actually restricts love. It restricts marriage. It restricts our sexuality in an unnatural way. Have you experienced these comments before? I imagine you have. Tim Keller says in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says, and I quote, one of the most widely held beliefs in our culture is that romantic love is the most important aspect to living a full life. And therefore, the day-in, day-out call to love, as we just read from Ephesians 5, is restricting. Have you heard things like this? Here's one that our young people may have heard. I will never get married because marriage is an antiquated, old social contract. Or the big one of our day is that marriage prohibits free love. All of these comments, these notions, and others like it, suggest that marriage is a hindrance to love. Not a helper. They suggest that marriage destroys intimacy. That marriage dampens romance. Congregation, these are serious allegations. Because when we read the biblical account concerning marriage, it speaks of marriage as the very place where love and romance and sexuality flourish. And I think what we're seeing in this tension is that our culture and the Bible have a different understanding of love. Don't they? When the culture speaks of love, it often speaks of it as an emotion, a romantic feeling, which we want to do everything we can to sustain for as long as possible, and as soon as it's gone, love is gone. But when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by what you can receive, but how much you're willing to give. To give of yourself. To someone else. Have you felt this tension? Whether you're married or whether you're not married, I'm assuming you have. But our goal in our time together this morning is that whether you're married, you would learn the Christian view of love in the Lord Jesus Christ, for Christ the King. Forsake these notions, these modern notions of marriage. And a Christian view of love that singles would learn what true love is and what to pursue in a spouse 
that the married would learn to truly love one another in Christ. That the elderly would pray that their children would find Christ-like love in their spouses. You see, for the last two weeks, we've been considering the Apostle Paul's words to Christian wives and to Christian husbands, but here we come to the crescendo of his argument in Ephesians 5. And this is our theme, that Christian marriage reflects the union that believers have in Christ. It's not in your bulletin, so you'll have to write it down. But Christian marriage reflects the union that believers have in Christ. We want to see this in three motions. The basis of marriage, the heart of marriage, and then the results of marriage. The basis, the heart, and the results. So let's look first at the basis of marriage from verse 31. The Apostle Paul in verse 31 quotes Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Abraham Kuyper, our forefather Abraham Kuyper says, what needs to be emphasized in the renewed battles over marriage is a better understanding of the origin and the history of marriage. Paul here in Ephesians 5 is speaking to people with a Roman and a pagan background. Marriage was seen by these people mainly as a social transaction. As we spoke about last week, it was a way to marry and to move up the social, political ladder. It was supposed to accomplish something that could satisfy you for the rest of your life, whether it was receiving power or wealth or money or whatever it may be. And it's not that different from our modern view of marriage today. We want something in return for our marriages that can satisfy us. But notice what Paul does. I wonder if Kuiper was commenting on this verse. He takes us back to Genesis 2. To the origin of marriage. To the basis of marriage. The purest form of marriage. To show us God's original design for marriage. And he shows us Paul shows us the primary goal of marriage is not our personal satisfaction, but to have oneness with someone else. To have a oneness. Notice in verse 31, when we look at the purest form of marriage, the marriage of Adam and Eve in the garden, the first thing we see is that they have a oneness in devotion to one another. A oneness in devotion. The Apostle Paul in verse 31, as I mentioned, is quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. But if you flip back with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, we'll notice something very interesting. That we, of course, know the story that Adam is working in the garden. He is naming all the beasts of the field. Uh, he has not found a helper suitable for him So God causes him to fall asleep. God takes a rib uh, from his flesh and makes woman. And we see this delight in Adam. This at last is the bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's this excitement about over his bride. 
But that's not what Paul's quoting here. He doesn't quote the creation of Eve. He doesn't quote the solemnization of their marriage or even of their consummation. He quotes Moses' commentary on this first marriage. See, who is speaking in verse 24? It's not Adam. He doesn't even know what a father and a mother is. He's the first created man. Here is Moses, as God is revealing to him this first marriage, making these comments. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. In the first perfect marriage that ever existed, we see that they are singularly devoted to each other. And he is, Moses is applying that to us in our marriages as well. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Remember what the old King James Version says. They are to leave and to cleave. And when he says leave, he's not saying forsake your parents. Even after you're married, young men and young women, you are still called to honor your parents. We see that in Ephesians 6, chapter 1, Exodus 20, verse 12. You are still called to care for your parents. 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 4. Still called to even listen to their advice. Proverbs 23, 22. What Moses is saying in Genesis 2 is that the highest priority, though, of a married person is their spouse. That the highest priority is their spouse. Put another way, our spouses are called to be the priority of our lives. He or she should supersede all other relationships. Even a relationship as wonderful and as good and as pure as a mother nursing you and a father nourishing you. Your first calling is to your marriage, to your spouse. There's an application that should not be ignored here as Moses is speaking about a good thing that can become a problem for people in their marriages. You see, marriages can be harmed by things that are bad. They can be harmed by drinking, drugs, pornography, whatever it could be. But what we're seeing here in Genesis 2 is that a marriage can also be harmed by something that is good. We call these pseudo-spouses. Your marriage can be harmed if you put your parents above your wife or above your husband. Your marriage can be hard if you live for your children. Your job or politics, good things, which you're called to do, but Moses is saying, first and foremost, we need to leave them and be singular in our devotion to our spouse. Not only that, but Moses tells us in Genesis 2, verse 24, that we're also to have not only a oneness in devotion, but a oneness in life. You're called to leave and cleave. That is to be one in 
life. The very word in our ESV Bible is that he is to hold fast, which can be translated from the Greek, which I'm talking about from Ephesians 5 here, can be translated as to be bonded together. To be, or to be glued together. That in the act of marriage, there is a oneness, not only in devotion, but a oneness in mind. A oneness in heart. A oneness in purpose. I like the way that Jay Adams talks about marriage. He calls it a covenantal friendship. Where there's vulnerability and transparency in every aspect of our lives. Doesn't Moses say that's what we should be striving for? Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. That is that they had transparency and there was no shame between them. There's also another sense in which they become one, which we'll speak about more later. But they also become one flesh. That in the consummation of their marriage, in that conjugal act, there is that union where the two become one. That by God's mystical grace, there is a bonding not only of devotion, a bonding that not only that we do things together and we like each other, but a bonding of the soul together in marriage. The perfect marriage shows us there's a oneness in devotion and a oneness in life. One application I really want to make for our young people who are here today is that marriage is good. Marriage is good. While our culture would like to suggest that marriage is a patriarchal social contract designed to suppress the feminine opinion. It was God who looked at His creation without marriage and said it was imperfect. It was lacking something. And then with marriage, looked upon creation and said it's very good. If you will, On that sixth day, God pronounces His divine benediction upon marriage. Young women, especially, are being targeted in our culture to say that to be a mother, to be a wife, is to perpetuate a patriarchal, a male-dominated society. That there's nothing good in doing this. You should go to college, and there's nothing wrong with going to college, but to the detriment of being a wife and a mother. This is also in some ways applied to young men as well. Hear this word. It is very good to fall in love, to be singularly devoted in life, in your calling to a husband, to a wife, it is good for you. 
There's nothing wrong with that calling. Here's the flip side of this application. Satan takes all things good and destroys them. Is that we also need to beware of sexual promiscuity. Cheap sex is not cheap. If you have a Bible and you flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, when talking about Moses' words in Genesis chapter 2, says in verse 16, or do you not know that he is joined, or he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? That is, in the act of premarital sex, and again, if you young children don't know, if you don't know what that means, don't ask me. Uh, go home and ask your parents. Better you hear it from them than from me. But in the act of premarital promiscuous sex, there is still that bonding. Still that two becoming one. And there is great pain and sadness and struggle that comes with the consequences of those actions. The beauty of marriage, the beauty of sexuality works best within the confines of being singularly devoted to one another. One should precede the other. Before you have the blessing of sexuality, you should also have the blessing of having somebody who is devoted to you in every aspect of your life. Let's look then at the heart of marriage. We've seen the, that perfect form of marriage, the basis, but we want to look at the heart of marriage, and here we're going to see the purest form of marriage. Now, when a couple comes to me and asks me to marry them, one of the questions I ask them, and some of you already know this, one of the questions I ask them is, what is the purpose of for your marriage. Why should you get married? What was the purpose of Adam's and Eve's marriage? I think the Apostle Paul, by divine inspiration, is reflecting on this very question. What is the purpose of marriage? And his marriage is not, his answer, excuse me, is not only that marriage reflects a union between a husband and a wife, but that marriage also reflects the union that Jesus Christ has with His church. When we marry someone in our tradition, we uh, actually reflect on this in the solemnization of marriage. We say these words, listen to this, the Apostle Paul shows us the exalted state of marriage and calls it a symbol. This is from our form a symbol of the mystical union of the Savior and the church. His redeemed bride. It is a picture of redemption. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in verse 32 when he calls marriage, he says, this mysterion, is profound. The Greek word is not meant to mean something secret. 
or some esoteric knowledge known only to insiders. But when the Apostle Paul calls this a mystery, he calls it an unlooked for truth that God is revealing through its Spirit, through His Spirit. So, what is the mystery? The mystery isn't actually that the two become one. Nor is the mystery, why did she marry him? That's a mystery. Paul says, the reason God gave us marriage, the reason God gave even Adam and Eve marriage, is that it would illustrate the relationship between Christ and His church. In our last point, when we were looking at Genesis 2, at the institution of marriage in paradise, there's an elephant in the room, isn't there? Look around, congregation. We're not in paradise anymore. And you don't have to be married for very long before you realize we are not in a sinless state. The difference between Adam and Eve's marriage and our marriage is that they were the perfect form. No shame, no sin, no hurts, no pains, naked and unafraid, but we are sinners. You all know what I'm talking about. All of us have had the experience, if you're married, of getting into a disagreement with our spouse or with our children, and then an hour, maybe a day later, realizing the problem isn't with them. It's with me. Because we're sinners. And when Adam and Eve fell into sin, it affected our minds. It affected our bodies. It affected our souls. And therefore, it affects our marriages. Sin affects our kids. The perfect ideal of the Garden of Eden seems so far away from us. So Ephesians 5, is He prescribing this for us? Is He saying we have to be perfect in our marriages? They have to be this excellent perfect illustration of that first marriage and the marriage between Christ and His church. I love what Herman Ritterboss says. He says it signifies a return and a restoration of the natural marriage out of Christ and the Holy Spirit. In other words, to put it more simply, marriage can be brought back to its original purity in Christ. Marriage can be brought back to its original purity in Christ. Paul focuses all throughout this Ephesian narrative again and again upon Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ 
is the head of the church. Now the church submits to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. What makes a marriage Christian isn't about how hard we try. Or whether our kids are well behaved enough. Or whether we're perfect enough. Or whether we love each other enough. What makes a marriage Christian is that it's the union of believers with Christ. That we keep looking to Christ. Trusting in Christ. Believing upon Christ. To forgive not only my sin, but my spouse's sin and my children's sin. And that one day, not only will this union be between her and I or him and I, but I'll have union with him. With Christ. And that singular devotion that he has had for me, I will have for him. Just like in Adam, when he was in paradise, was singularly devoted to Eve with one mind, one with her in body and soul and mind. All that he has was hers. So is Christ, our bridegroom. He is singularly devoted to you. He gives you all that He has and He shares all that He has with you, body and soul. Every benefit of His is now yours. You see, one of the dangers when you go through Ephesians 5 as a congregation is that sometimes it can feel like we will never measure up. A wife will never submit to her husband as she ought to. A husband will never love his wife as he ought to. We don't know marriage. We don't know love in its perfect form. But hear the good news this morning. We do know love in its purest form. We know of Christ's love. A love that can overcome even Adam and Eve's sin. What does this teach us then? Congregation, if you are struggling in your marriage, if you are struggling in your submission and your call to submit as a wife, or struggling in your call to love your wife and to put her, her needs before your own, what does this mean? It says, no, Paul is saying, no marriage is too far gone. Not to be redeemed. To be restored. In Christ. If He can save sinners such as us, have union with sinners such as us, give us all of the benefits divine, He can restore and fix our marriages. Another application for those who are younger here today who have not yet been married, maybe feel called to marriage one day. A word for the children then. Pray for your parents' marriage. The best thing your parents can be for you is in love with one another and in love with their Savior. Do all that you can to foster in them a greater love for one another and for Christ. 
Finally, let's see the Apostle Paul's words in verse 33. The results of marriage. The bond that exists between Christ and His church is the highest ideal to which the bond between a husband and a wife must answer. If we have been given mystical union in Christ, if it should be reflected anywhere, it should be reflected first in our marriages. You see, we can sit here, and, but we can marvel at the mystical union of Christ. We can marvel at the perfection of the second Adam. But isn't the simplest truth often the most profound of truths? That He loved us. And He gave Himself for us. I was reminded in James Montgomery Boyce's sermon of the story of Hosea and Gomer. The book of Hosea is an illustration of the love that God has for His people. Even when they are unfaithful. We are like Gomer. An unfaithful wife married to faithful Hosea. Gomer was flirtatious and soon left the prophet for another man. And we're told in chapter 3 that she sank so low in her folly that she was sold as a slave. And he had to go back and buy his wife. And he bought her, it says in Hosea 3, for 15 shekels of silver, which is the slave price for a slave. Not the bride price. At that point, she was his property. He could have killed her if he wished for being unfaithful, for running around on him. But we're told in Hosea, instead, he loved her. It becomes a beautiful illustration of the way Jesus loves us. And how our marriages are to illustrate our union with Him. We are the adulterous one. We're the ones sold on the slave block of sin. But He loved us when we didn't love Him. He died for us when we were running from His love. Yet still He bought us with the greatest of sacrifices. Not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. Peter says... This is the wonder of this passage. The climax of Ephesians 5. That our marriages on earth reflect the Christ-church relationship. Christ can and should be seen in the union of a husband and a wife. And Paul says in verse 33, No one is exempted from this call. Let each one of you, every single one of us who are married here today, are called to this. To love his wife as himself and a wife to respect her, her husband. None of us are exempt because our husband is too unlovable or because our wife is too frustrating. But we are called in a word at the end of Ephesians 5 to love as Christ loved. Husbands, see to it that you love 
your wife as yourself. You were called to love her like Christ has loved the church. Put her first. Love her with a sacrificial love, with an end that sees her sanctified and later glorified. Wives, respect your husbands. Follow His loving leadership. Be willing to submit to your husband just like Christ submits to the Father's goodwill for your good. Love, we see then, is not simply an emotional feeling that we need to prolong for as long as we can. But love is an action. It's something we need to be committed to. To do every single day. And you might say, well, what if I don't feel the feeling of love? But let us be reminded that feelings of love often need to be preceded by actions of love. Feelings of love often need to be preceded by actions of love. We didn't love Christ. He first loved us. Let's conclude. Congregation, God delights in marriage. He only creates good things. Due to the fall into sin and our wickedness, our marriages can fall apart. Yet Christ has come to bring restoration. To bring restoration not only to broken people, but broken institutions, to this broken world, and yes, even this broken family. When a husband and wife Look to Christ together. It's a beautiful picture of the church and our union with Christ. I think Dr. Kuyper was right. That those who marry in the Lord and look unto Christ experience an even greater, deeper, richer marriage than Adam and Eve did in paradise. We have been given a great privilege to marry, but then also to look unto Him. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful God, we give You thanks for this opportunity to study Your Word and to consider for the last three weeks the call as husbands to love our wives, to put their needs ahead of our own, and for wives to submit to their husbands, to follow their loving leadership in all things. But yet, Lord, we have seen that it is a beautiful reflection of not only marital love and happiness in this life, but it's a beautiful reflection of what Christ has done for us. That even though we are sinners and have fallen short of that perfect standard that we saw in the garden, He has been merciful towards us. He has loved us even when we were slaves to sin, unfaithful to Him. He has been pleased to buy us back with His own precious blood. We give You thanks for this. We ask, Heavenly Father, that You would work in us by Your Holy Spirit to strengthen the marriages of this church, strengthen these families, and may they ever look to Christ for all things. We pray in His name. Amen.